Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Before we get any farther, because I keep forgetting to say this, you know, I think at the beginning of this year, I stopped putting our theme music yes, at the beginning the mu- because I had it on my other computer and the file disappeared and I know things don't really disappear that you can find them but I just haven't do you think anyone's noticed or cares no, I don't know I we never just have, liked it anyway we, so we just did it we just we did it because it was around. free we, we put two free things together and figured we'd change <laughs> it at some point so now we have a cold open one thing I've noticed some other podcasts the theme music doesn't really bother me, but I think some, like it goes on too long, yeah. but I don't really think we need, our voices are yeah. so musical. I don't think, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. When I couldn't find the file, we were going to revisit it. Like if we needed music, theme yeah. music or not, but uh, I don't miss it. Yeah, I don't either. Okay. If good. Any of you well, guys out done. there miss it, you just let us know. Yeah, let us know. But anyway, so so you it's my turn, but you have some updates. I have some updates, and I'm try I'm trying to keep them short because I have several because a couple things happen at once, but then also one or two fell through the cracks. So so Ooh. I wanted to kind of catch up, and these are an order of episode from earliest episode Ooh. to closest. Okay. So we'll start with episode three. Wow, Ayla Reynolds. Oh, Ayla. One of our and people can listen, but we definitely had a sound issue on that one, didn't we? Mm. We were just learning. I would say at least the first <laughs> we we don't thirty wanna, thirty oh, five. I don't know. That's depressing. But listen, listen to them to anyway, them. though, if you can stand them. People. Yeah, I mean, there's so, some good episodes in there. We but. really didn't fix our sound problems until the pandemic, and we had to Zoom. Yeah. If we had known before how easy and how good it would sound. Although things have upgraded too. Like we have that little audio, the Evo 4 made possible by that generous donation from Rhonda. Yes, thank you, Rhonda. And some other stuff. But yeah, we tried, you know, and we're amateurs. We're doing our best. Yeah. So anyway, episode three, Ayla Reynolds. Okay, Ayla. Ayla Reynolds' mother, Trista Reynolds, has expanded her wrongful death suit against Ayla's father, Justin DePietro, to include his mother, Phoebe DePietro, and sister, Alicia DePietro. Mm-hmm. A quick recap, Ayla, 21 months old at the time, disappeared from her grandmother's house in Waterville, Maine, overnight, December 17, 2011. At the time, her father, DePietro, his girlfriend, Courtney Roberts, and his sister, Alicia DePietro, were in the house. His mother wasn't home. Both Alicia and Courtney have babies as well. Babies under one, I think, both of them. And nothing happened to their babies. DePietro was living with his mother, Phoebe DePietro, at the house. She wasn't home that night. Trista Reynolds alleges that Alicia and Phoebe helped Justin DePietro clean up after whatever happened to Ayla and helped him cover up whatever happened, get rid of her little body. Her disappearance was classified as a homicide around a year after she disappeared. And police said they found her blood in the basement where she slept with her father and his girlfriend and his girlfriend's baby. A judge officially declared Ayla dead in 2017, giving Trista Reynolds clearance for the wrongful death suit. You can't file a wrongful death suit unless the person's declared dead. Trista's lawyer, William Childs, said in the motion to add Phoebe and Alicia to the wrongful death suit that there is sufficient evidence that all three DePietros participated in an unsuccessful attempt to clean up and conceal the blood stains found in what he says are multiple locations Mm. in the house before authorities arrived. 
The family also planned or participated in removing Ayla's body from Phoebe's house and concealing it in an unknown location. A Morning Sentinel article reports that Childs says Trista retained a forensic expert who examined newly disclosed police evidence, which included, quote, numerous reports and analysis from the Maine State Police Crime Laboratory, unquote. The evidence was not available to Childs when the suit was originally filed in 2018, when it just named Justin DePietro. And of course, like everything else, it's been slowed down by the COVID. And also Uh because Justin is all the way across the country and hard to reach. His lawyer, Justin's lawyer, Michael J. Waxman of Portland, told the Morning Sentinel that he doesn't represent Phoebe or Alicia and that they should get their own lawyers. Mm-hmm. And I would advise them to get their own lawyers, too. As I always yeah. say, he, he said, including them in the suit could possibly further delay it. Ooh. Oh, please. Waxman also talked to the forensic expert himself about the information, and he apparently isn't impressed Quote, they have an uphill battle in this case to prove my client caused this child's death, Waxman said. They don't have solid evidence. Any particular person did any particular thing to this girl, unquote. DePietro lives out of state, as I said, and who can blame him, guilty or innocent yeah. at this point? I may need to do a full catch-up episode at some point, but that's where it stands. It- uh, I hate to say it cliche, but somebody knows something. Yes, I always Something thought, happened to I her. I always thought when he broke up with Courtney Roberts, she'd spill the beans. But the problem is all three of them are implicated. It's a tiny little house. Nobody broke into that house and took a rambunctious 21-month-old and left two other babies and the three adults there didn't hear or see anything the first person who talks usually gets the best gets the best deal but maybe they figure or immunity if if they have enough but if none of them talk they figure they can just go on living their lives or whatever a lot of times people's consciences get the best right yes let's are we gonna say like every cliche yes um i'm trying to think of some more but one thing i i do want to say will come out for people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the truth has a way of coming out. There are more twists. You couldn't even you couldn't write a fiction novel with this many twists. But one thing I will say for people who aren't that familiar or who may have forgotten, Justin did not have a relationship with Ayla. Trista and he had a very short, brief relationship. She got pregnant. He didn't have a relationship with the child, but she had to go into rehab. So he decided to do his fatherly duty and take mm-hmm. Ayla and move into his mother's house so his mother could help which they tend to do when the fella has the baby so the mother Mm -hmm. the grandmother's actually doing the raising and i'm not saying that to draw necessarily any conclusions from that but this child was basically a stranger to him and she already her arm was in a cast at the time she disappeared because he said he was, it was raining out or snowing because this was December and he was carrying in groceries and had her in his arm and slipped on the steps and fell and she broke her arm. When he brought her to the hospital, they didn't, they weren't suspicious or anything, but it just, obviously, I remember when she disappeared and it first was thought, well, maybe she wandered off because she was an energetic little kid. And I remember that night it got down to close to zero Fahrenheit um, <laughs> that 
a, a two-year-old in her pajamas when it's zero out, especially if her arm is in a cast or younger than two, isn't going to get very far. She won't get far. And they have, I mean, they have found kids right out in the cold. Right. Right. They find them. If she was anywhere to be found, she would have been found. Aww. And she wasn't reported missing until about 830 the next morning. So mm-hmm. Maine's a big state and that's a lot of... Mm-hmm places i remember ben mccanna was a reporter who covered it and who we talked to episode three yes was we were talking about he had gone hiking with his family maybe a year or so after it happened he was doing all these stories and they were on the top of mount philip which is not really a mountain here in the area i live in and he was just looking out at the landscape and thinking of all the places a little body like that Anyway, mm-hmm. we move forward to an update on episode 55. Nancy Ooh. Crampton Brophy, the infamous uh, yes. How to Murder Your Husband author. Nancy Crampton Brophy was sentenced to life in prison on a second degree mm. murder charge on June 13th for the murder of her husband, Daniel Brophy, in Portland, Oregon. The other Portland. <laughs> Nancy, who wrote romance novels, made the mistake of seven years before she shot her husband writing a whimsical essay on how to murder your husband is part of apparently it was part of an assignment for a writing workshop i don't think we knew that um at the time of our episode or maybe we did our episode was pretty thorough <laughs> daniel brophy 63 ran a culinary school and was a popular chef in portland nancy now 71 was arrested in september 2018 for the june 2018 murder mm-hmm. after her sentencing cnn reported quote the couple had debt Crampton Brophy's self-published novels were not big sellers. And Daniel Brophy was insured for more than $1 million, prosecutors argued. I know it sounds like I'm just bragging here, but our episode, because people, it wasn't, it's not because we're so great. Yes, but, we are. but other people are so lackluster mm. that our episode actually had a lot of details other people didn't have, including that they'd had a fire at their house, which was then undergoing a lengthy and expensive renovation that was causing mm. their nerves to fray and other things. So I, I do suggest listening to the episode. I think the sound yeah. is okay. Anyway, she testified she was better off financially with him alive. And the fact her minivan was seen near the school, culinary school at the time, that was just a coincidence. Yeah, you can argue, but when you're killing the person for the insurance money, you're not necessarily thinking of all the nuances about how you would not be any financially better off. I think you're thinking, wow, he's got that million dollar insurance. You're not thinking, but then there's this and this and this. If they even give me the insurance policy because he's murdered and they have to solve the murder before I can get the money, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, as I said, we cover it very extensively in episode 55. So if you're not familiar with all the ins and outs, you may want to listen. Dateline recently had an episode, but I think we I watched did it. a better I think job. I, yeah, they didn't have um, as much. The judge in the case correctly didn't allow the how to murder your husband essay as evidence. Mm. And I know we made fun of it and critiqued it on our episode, but I just want to say as a writer myself, it's a big mistake for people to think that what we write is somehow evidence of motive or anything else. I would say the only time it would be is like that guy, that Dexter wannabe guy in Canada that they a lot of true crime shows have been where he laid out in detail how he would kill men. And then he did kill them yes. in that detail. But um, it's a real slippery slope if you're going to start assuming that what somebody writes yeah. is 
fact or their motive for anything. And I don't want to get into a big thing about the writing process, but all someone's writing really proves is whether they're a good writer or not. Which she really wasn't. She wasn't. Sorry, Nancy. Sorry, Nancy. But maybe she can hone her craft in prison. Mm. Episode 71 the title of that was third anniversary main murders and more wow nicholas lovejoy pleaded guilty this past may 3rd to killing melissa Sousa in waterville maine in 2019 mm-hmm. one of the murders we covered in that episode the state has asked that lovejoy be sentenced to 45 years he has not yet been sentenced a quick recap melissa the mother of two children with lovejoy was found shot to death wrapped mm-hmm. in a tarp and duct tape mm-hmm. in the basement of their waterville apartment building mm-hmm. In October 2019, Lovejoy said he killed her in self-defense after mm-hmm. she attacked him and pushed him down the stairs, then tried to shoot him, but the gun didn't fire. He picked up the gun and shot her twice in the stomach. It turns out now it came out at the trial or in court that she was actually shot four times. But if his story was true, which it obviously isn't, your self-defense defense ends the second you have the gun in your hand and the other person is no longer a threat. Just saying. Exactly. Anyway, when it's obvious they're the ones who did it and they don't have a good explanation other than they're assholes who killed someone, they always try to blame the dead woman we see at every single case. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's another sad story of an asshole man with a gun shooting an innocent, hardworking woman who's just trying to get by in a hard scrabble life. And I'll quote from the Kennebec Journal story by old friend Keith Edwards mm-hmm. on May 4th. A long ongoing series of disturbing texts and social media messages from Lovejoy to Sousa in the weeks preceding her death, read by Assistant Attorney General Katie Sibley in court, showed Lovejoy was enraged that Sousa was having an affair with another man. And I put air quotes around having an affair with another man. I don't think the KJ didn't, um, but everything these guys say to me is suspect. He may have suspected she was having an affair and was hassling her about it. But that doesn't mean she was having one. Uh-huh. She was working at Dunkin' Donuts and stuff. She didn't, and ha- raising two I don't kids. Think she had time. Not yeah. like she, but back to the KJ, those texts and messages included photographs of Lovejoy with guns, <laughs> including one in which one of their daughters was visible in the background. Oh, he threatened Sousa and the man she was allegedly having an affair with, both in person and via text or Facebook messages. Those threats include an argument with Sousa recorded on audio, which Lovejoy can be heard racking a gun and saying he has two options, kill you before I do that or kill you before I do that, a friend of Sousa told police. He also sent a photograph on September 28th, 2019, less than a month before she was killed, in which he was holding an assault rifle. He wrote that he was not losing her and the rifle was loaded and ready to go and it was, quote, your choice, baby girl, unquote. After one incident, Sousa said Lovejoy put a gun to her and she was almost killed. He responded that next time she would be. The night of October 21st, 2019, a home surveillance system in the couple's apartment, which police said was always recording, was shut off just before midnight and not turned back on until 8.43 a.m. That day, Lovejoy took the couple's eight-year-old twin daughters to McDonald's, where he messaged her phone four times asking where she was and when she was coming home. That's called trying to create. Oh, how clever of him. Yes. He also streamed a video on Facebook Live with one of the daughters asking on the video if maybe their mom was home sleeping. Lovejoy will be sentenced at a later date. 
according to Superior Court Judge Bill Stokes, a star of many mm, of our episodes. Bill Stokes, yeah. The plea deal caps the amount of time he can be sentenced to prison for, to 45 years, though his lawyers can argue for less time than that. That's all. Thank you, Kennebec Journal. For more on that, listen to episode 71. And when he's sentenced, I'll do an update. And But again, guns, asshole men, not mentally ill, just angry. In fact, David Hogg, you know, the Parkland shooting yes. um, campa- campaigner, like we're English, advocate was on MSNBC today. And he pointed out that hatred, racism, and misogyny are not mental illnesses. Exactly. That obviously this guy, Lovejoy, was using his guns to intimidate, control, and threaten, and then uh-huh. he used them to kill uh-huh. because that's what guns do. Okay, on to episode 78 with several updates after that, Jelaine Maxwell. Oh, Jelaine. Jelaine was sentenced to 20 years in prison on June 28th on charges of sex trafficking and others (sighs) after being found guilty in December. The judge said she played a pivotal role in facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's, and this is my wording, serial sexual abuse of girls. (sighs) Maxwell, 60, speaking in court, didn't apologize or accept responsibility, though she did acknowledge the, quote, pain and anguish of the victimized women who had testified in her trial. Quote, it is the greatest regret of my life that I ever met Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, I bet it is. Jeffrey Epstein should have been here before all of you, unquote. Yeah, no shit, but the controlling asshole he was, he killed himself because they do that so they can control the final narrative. I'm not saying I don't agree. She shouldn't have been convicted and sentenced. I certainly think she should have. I certainly think she was guilty of everything she was charged with. But it'd be great to start seeing men who are serial abusers go to prison. Sure, Epstein killed himself. Weinstein was convicted. And R. Kelly finally was. But Bill Cosby is out. And there's rarely the effort made to convict the fellas. And a lot more effort put into discrediting their victims than there was with Jelaine. It kind of reminds me of convictions for cops who kill innocent people. The female cops and cops of color who do it get the book thrown at them, while the white guys tend to get off, unless it's like Derek Chauvin, who, you know, kneeled on George Floyd's yes. neck for 10 minutes. And it's so obvious that they have to convict him. But white guys get a pass. Mm-hmm. Not sure why. Well, I know why as far as sexual assault, serial sexual assault, because we live in a misogynistic world. Exactly. Crimes against women are not really taken that as seriously. No. And the women are always have to somehow defend their uh, victimization, defend themselves Mm -hmm. for being victims and are not believed. On to episode 112. This is kind of, but not really an update to our episode 110 main mini, which we updated with a lot more information in episode 112. That was a main mini on two bodies that were found in two separate Casella waste dumps, one in New Hampshire and one in Maine. And that was last fall. Two weeks ago, the body of Paul Hayden, 64 of Portland, Maine, was found amid the contents of a cardboard recycling truck in a Casella waste recycling site in Scarborough, Maine. An autopsy determined he died of natural causes, and they are doing toxicology tests, which are expected to take multiple weeks to complete, police said. Last year, Jessica Lurvey, 28, of Laconia, New Hampshire, whose body was found in the Belmont dump on September 9th, and boyfriend Michael Schofield, 29, whose body was found in Lewiston, Maine, landfill December 21st, were both determined to have been a contributing cause of their death was fentanyl. Um, use or overdose in december 
the New Hampshire Medical Examiner's Office said that Lurvy was accidentally crushed by a trash <sighs> compactor after taking fentanyl, and they hadn't released Schofield's cause of death, but said it was likely also drug intoxication or crush injuries. They're not <sighs> sure which. Police said that on September 8th last year, the two sought shelter in a large trash or recycling bin during a heavy rainstorm, and they were then dumped into a garbage truck and taken to the separate dumps you know nobody knew they were in with all the rubbish that's so sad of course um, since the paul hayden thing happened a couple weeks ago no reporters have really pursued it but i'm gonna guess the same type of thing happened Mm -hmm. i guess a dumpster looks like a good place to sleep if you're out on the streets and using drugs very sad that is sad and my final it's not really an update but just kind of a little to wrap a couple things up from our last episode Ooh. episode 125 the one about wow Oh, we're already at 125. Yeah, well, this is 126. I know, yeah. I know. Um, there's a couple things I meant to say that I didn't. One of them was that after a guy in a tent was killed and others were injured by lightning at the Chimney Pond campground in 1968, and they banned tenting there, which I had said, they mm-hmm. built a bunkhouse for hikers, mm. and the bunkhouse was named after Ralph Heath, a no. ranger who was killed trying to save Margaret no. Ivasek. And I also want to say a little more about preparation. This is something I accidentally deleted from when I was talking about the guy in 2010 who wanted to take a shortcut on Katahdin mm-hmm. and was lost for three days and he got severely dehydrated because he didn't want to drink much water because of yes, he's afraid of parasites. Yeah, right. Which is a real concern. But there's a book called Katahdin, a guide to Baxter State Park, which I have several copies of because they're always updating yeah. it, but also just online and stuff. What troubled me one thing about this guy is he was from Ohio, but he had planned to hike all these high peaks in New England. Yet he didn't have enough water and you're supposed to bring either water, a water filtration, enough water in case you get lost, a water filtration, little water filtration or those little tabs or liquid that you can put in water to cleanse it, to purify it. That's one of the things you're advised to do if you're hiking Katana and especially alone in case you get lost. So I just wonder about that guy. Like how prepared it's another example. And I know I'm belaboring it because I really belabored it probably you like to beat the drum yes i'm beating the drum on it but how do you go to climb a mountain like katad and, and not do even cursory research about your preparation I don't know. now that the Especially internet in is this day and age. Yeah. Like, yeah yeah and i i guess it, for guys it's the same issue as them not wanting to read manuals before they assemble something or ask directions or whatever yeah. but um also, I, a correction, the, the first white guy to climb Katahdin was Charles Turner Jr., which I knew, but I think I accidentally said Tyler in the episode. Not a big okay. deal, but I just don't want people. And for our UK listeners, the second was a party of British surveyors from the Maine Boundary Commission led by Sir Colin Campbell in 1819. Ooh. And it doesn't say, I read that in the Katahdin book while I was camping. It doesn't say, but my guess is the fact there was a Maine Boundary Commission had to do with the fact Maine was becoming a state in 1820, Except, yeah, yeah. part of the Missouri Compromise. Mm-hmm. And they had to survey the state boundaries, not that Katahdin is anywhere near one. And I'm wondering if British surveyors were involved because most of the state's boundary is with Canada. Probably, you know, know, so anyway, as you guys know, I recently spent three nights at Baxter, the last two nights of June and the first night of July. It was beautiful. And I wasn't anywhere near Katahdin. I was in the north part of the park at South Branch Pond. But I couldn't help but think when I was there of 
the people in our episode. Yeah. Particularly poor Jesse Hoover. Oh. Since she just went out there, she had this dream, and you think of how sad it is that she how scared she must have been it's it's very dark it's very remote even at a campground where there were other people close by you just realize how big and dark and remote and it was raining it's just so sad it was just so sad and um and anyway those are all my updates thank you you've been so busy well not as busy as i could have been i guess but yeah so I guess you have a story for us then. I do have a story. It's a fairly recent one. Ooh. It's happened within the last couple of years and the court things just wrapped up recently. And we will see if you recognize it. It's not from Maine. It's from New Hampshire. Well, remember, I haven't been in New Hampshire for 10 years. Yeah, but so if it this happened- story made national headlines okay i'll oh. let you know when i when i record like name that tune you know yeah I, ding okay my sources for this episode are in-depth new hampshire.org oh, oh that's nancy actually- west i just want to say give a shout out that's run by nancy west a longtime union leader reporter who covered and i think i've quoted her in some of our episodes but she covered courts crime she's an expert on every friggin bulldog report and they were and they were they covered things in depth they had really good stories wmur tv um, which put a lot of raw trial footage on youtube which was helpful associated press cbs news new hampshire department of justice website manchester union leader it's it's actually the new hampshire union leader i'm sorry no i was just saying where it's from okay um manchester new hampshire union leader the keen new hampshire sentinel the monadnock ledger transcript Mm. and there's a couple other sources that i'll cite as i go okay it was the third weekend in september 2020 smack dab in the middle of bear hunting and baiting season elmer long jr and his fellow hunters were annoyed There was someone illegally camping right where they were hunting and setting traps. Not only was it unsafe for people camping there, but the campers would scare the bears away. Elmer later said, we pay a lot of money to do what we do. No one's supposed to be camping or having fires. The bear hunting site was in the woods of Atkinson Gilmanton Academy Grant in Coes County, New Hampshire. The Atkinson Gilmanton Academy Grant is a township in the northeast of the state, just over the border from the Rangeley Lakes area in Maine. In the early hours of Sunday, September 20th, Elmer and his hunting buddies saw two cars drive up a tote road into the woods, into their hunting area. On Sunday evening, they saw a Jeep leaving. On Monday, the hunters realized someone was still camping in the area. A couple of them drove to the campsite on Monday night and beeped their horns until a young woman came out of the tent. They told her she was camping too close to a bear baiting site and she had to leave. On Tuesday morning, some of the hunters drove to the nearest town, Errol, to call the fish and game department and report the interloper when they realized she hadn't left the area. She just moved the tent further into the woods. And the reason they had to go to Errol is because there's no cell service up there. Right. Just in case you're wondering. Just in case you're going to go hiking up there and think your cell will save you. (laughs) On Tuesday, September 22nd, two fishing game department officers came to the campsite. They found a young woman camping alone. They asked her what she was doing there. Only one report said that they went because there was a dog barking and she was with a dog and there is no mention anywhere else of a dog in any, any, anything I have Mm, read. So I don't understand where that person got that. But anyway, 
She told him her name was Brittany Barron and she was just clearing her head. She had been at a party and had gotten into a fight with some of her girlfriends and she decided to get away. As the officer spoke with Brittany, they noticed she was beat up. She had two black eyes and her left eye was bright red with burst blood vessels. As they looked around the campsite, they became suspicious. They noticed a car in the trees with a tarp over it. They looked back at Brittany and asked her what was really going on. Mm. Brittany told them, I'm in big trouble. The events that ended with Brittany Barron stranded in the remote woods of northern New Hampshire had started over a week before the fishing game officers approached her campsite. On Saturday, September 12th, 2020, Brittany told her husband, Armando, that she wanted a divorce. It's ringing a bell, but I'm not, you know, oh, involved. You better cut that out. No, I will cut it out. I will cut it out. I will. Brittany was 31 at the time and Armando was 30. They had been together since they were teenagers in New Mexico and had three young daughters together. Brittany had been kicked out of her house when she was 17 and moved to Armando's house where he still lived with his parents. This was back when they lived in New Mexico. She'd been sexually and physically abused all through her childhood. Brittany and Armando lived on one side of a duplex in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. His parents lived on the other side. And I think that his parents must have moved to New Hampshire for some reason, and Brittany and Armando moved with them. Oh, okay. They were young. While Brittany worked as a line worker at Teleflex, a medical equipment company in Jaffrey, Armando stayed at home with the girls. He also homeschooled them, supposedly. Huh. At the time, Brittany told Armando that she was no longer in love and wanted to attend their marriage. Their youngest child was almost two years old. She had been born in October of 2018. Brittany was still breastfeeding at the time, which is important to know because she didn't like to be away from her child for long. She later said her youngest needed the breastfeeding for comfort and to be able to get to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Brittany later said when she told Armando she wanted to break up, he grabbed her by the throat and said, are you serious? And then he tried to strangle her. Mm. Brittany was serious. She wanted to move out and move on. She had been with Armando for half her life, and he had not been a good husband. He was controlling and abusive. He was unfaithful and yet jealous of Brittany talking to other men. In the previous weeks, Brittany had developed a friendship with a co-worker, Jonathan Amaral. John was an engineer at Teleflux. And by the way, I tried to find out how many workers were at that particular plant. They make medical stints, shunts or whatever they're called. And they make like little fake veins and shit like that. All right. I think it's like three or 400 of people work there. Sounds about right. Brittany said she and John had worked on a project together at work and they got along really well. John was 25 and had been a bit lonely for a while. I think he had a a college romance that had broken up. Hmm. He was a good looking guy. People called him Abercrombie because they said he looked like a model from the popular clothing company catalog. He and Brittany didn't know if they were going to start seeing each other romantically, but there was a mutual attraction and there was definitely a willingness on both sides to see how it might go. After the day Brittany told Armando she wanted a divorce, she and John started exchanging Facebook messages. But John said he didn't really like Facebook Messenger. Brittany was concerned about Armando seeing any texts on her phone, so they ended up using Snapchat. I have never used Snapchat, so forgive me if I get any of this wrong. 
But if you don't opt to save messages, pictures, et cetera, they will disappear within a certain period of time. According to Brittany, John set their messages to have a duration of 24 hours before they disappeared. Brittany and John also talked when they could at work. One day after work, they went in John's car to Edward McDowell Dam in Peterborough which is about a six to seven miles away from their work, where they parked and talked for about an hour. This was at about 3 p.m. Brittany usually worked overtime, but on this day, she left at her normal time. She left her car in the employee parking lot in case Armando happened to check the parking lot to see if she was at work. And she went with John in his car. They didn't have a plan as to where they were going. They just wanted to talk and spend some time together. According to Brittany, quote, I said I couldn't offer anything more than friendship. I said, I don't mind getting to know you like you're a very nice person, but I don't even know if I like you, you know, at this point. I don't know what kind of music you listen to. I don't know if you can like if I can just be around you as a friend, you know what I mean? So like, I don't mind getting to know you, but I can't promise you any more than that. And good for her. She gave John a quick peck on the lips as he dropped her off at her car that day. Actually, he dropped her off at the main employee parking lot not the side lot where she normally parked because she didn't want Armando quote, if he showed up end quote, to see someone dropping her off to see that she wasn't where she said she was. Mm -hmm. I found this interesting that she mentioned this twice in her later testimony. You don't have to read too far between the lines to see that Armando showing up and checking on her was something that happened on a regular basis. Yeah, I was going to say that. It was pretty obvious. I mean, like, I never worry if Eric's going to, like, drive by and see if my car's at work. I know. When John dropped Brittany off that afternoon, she went into the building, the regular employee entrance, and then she exited out the exit that was near her car to go home, just in case. She didn't want Armando seeing her. Right. I guess he couldn't, you couldn't see from the street, the entrance she went in. She said that John was very kind, very sweet. Like he was really funny and he didn't show that on the floor because he was in professional mode. He was really funny. This was during her later testimony and she started crying at this point. She said, he doesn't really joke around and he doesn't talk very much if it's not about work. And like seeing his personality outside work, it's like, man, you're really cool. You're a really cool guy. Two days after their meeting at the dam, Brittany and John met during a work break and kissed again in John's car. They talked about work, a new automated part that John was trying to get going on the line. Then John leaned over and kissed her, a more passionate kiss than before, she said. Later, Brittany said, I thought there might have been potential, but I wasn't planning on a relationship. On the evening of Saturday, September 19th, Armando somehow got Brittany's phone. He opened up her Snapchat account and read messages between Brittany and John. Brittany had been logging out each time, so Armando couldn't see that she'd been talking to someone else. But apparently this time she hadn't. Armando sent his three young daughters next door to their grandparents' home. Then he started beating Brittany mercilessly. The oldest child, who was nine at the time, apparently witnessed some of this attack. Oh, Armando had a 45 caliber revolver he liked to call the judge. Armando took the loaded gun and shoved it into Brittany's mouth, chipping one of her teeth. He strangled her to the point of her passing out several times. He said, you know, you're going to die tonight, right? How come these guys always have to talk in such cliches? I know. Like they're in some stupid movie. They're such assholes. I know. Armando told Brittany that they were going for a drive. 
He said if they didn't leave, their daughters were going to see something horrible. He said, don't do anything stupid or the girls are going to walk into something fucking gruesome. He forced Brittany into their Jeep and drove southeast to Annette Wayside Park in Ringe, about three or four miles away. While he drove, he read the Snapchat messages between Brittany and John. As he read each message, he would ask Brittany questions about John, and when she answered, he'd punch her in the face. By the time they reached the park, Brittany's nose was broken and blood was gushing down her face. Now, just so you know, Annette Park is a state park. It's not a park like Central Park in New York or something. It's rustic. There are picnic tables and parking areas and a reservoir, but there aren't any lights and there are a lot of trees. In fact, it's right near Cathedral of the Pines. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Supposedly, the gates are closed at night. I looked it up online, but the accounts I read don't really say where he parked within the park. So there was probably a lot of times with these parks, they do have gates. But then when you drive in, there's still parking areas. Right. That you or can access. yeah, like you drive in the entrance and the gate isn't for a while. Yes. So yeah. you're there in the woods and nobody's going to see and you. And it's if dark. They Armando took Brittany's phone and said, we're going to message your little boyfriend and texted Jonathan Amaral asking him to meet her. Jonathan showed up about 1140 p.m. Mm. Armando confronted him saying, you're trying to fuck my wife as a question. Now, I haven't read a lot of details about how this exactly went down, but Armando had planned this attack. So I think he probably didn't show himself to John at first there had to be some way he got him to get out of his car because right. otherwise he would have just driven away so he must have used Brittany somehow to lure him to get out of the car so right. he could attack unless him. he was enough of a gentleman that he said oh shit Brittany's asshole husband it, she's gonna get hurt I need to get out of the that car that could be too Brittany said he just starts hitting him he just starts hitting him Armando beat Jonathan within an inch of his life he stomped on Jonathan's head with such force that the impression of the sole of Armando's shoe was still visible on Jonathan's head days later. Oh, Brittany told investigators Armando, quote, beat the hell out of this kid. He punched him. Jonathan fell. And then he just started kicking him and kicking him and kicking him in his back, in his Anywhere, anywhere. He didn't care. He was just kicking this guy. He stomped on his face. John didn't lose consciousness through the attack. Brittany said, that's the worst part. Like, he was awake for everything. Oh, he was cute. Yeah, he was very cute. Well, they called him. They called him Abercrombie. Yeah, Yeah, and look at Armando. I know. The stupid little ponytail on the top of his head. Armando handed his gun, the judge to Brittany and told her to shoot Jonathan. Kill him, shoot him, do it, Armando commanded. She wouldn't do it. So Armando forced her to stand at Jonathan's neck in order to strangle him to death, but he didn't die. Jonathan begged for his life. He said he would never speak to Brittany or see her again. Armando taunted Jonathan saying, look at her, dude. Do you still think she's pretty? Jonathan looked at Brittany and said, yeah, I do. Then Armando made Brittany slash John's wrist. She did slash them, but it wasn't fatal. Then Armando took a machete and slashed at Jonathan as he lay on the ground. What is that with these New Hampshire guys and their machetes? In Maine, too, there are so many fucking machete crimes. I don't don't know. I like the name. Yeah. Armando picked up Jonathan and put him in the back seat of John Subaru. He made Brittany get in the front seat. There was a machete in the car. News reports aren't clear how it got there, but it wasn't John's. It was Armando's. John begged Brittany to take the knife and kill her husband, but she was unable to act on it. 
Brittany later said John told her, just pick up the machete and kill him. She said she answered, you don't understand, man. I'm not going to kill him with that blow and we're both going to die in this car. She later said, I wasn't going to test him. Armando got in the passenger seat and turned around with a gun pointed at Jonathan. I thought you were going to let me live, Jonathan said to Armando. Armando said, I guess that makes both of us liars. And then he shot John three times. What a jerk. Then Armando made Brittany follow him to their home, she driving John's car and he driving their Jeep. Now... I'm going to stop here to clarify some things, and we certainly will discuss this at the end. I know a lot of you are thinking, why did she not escape? Why didn't she drive to the police station instead of home? I mean, I kind of understand those questions, but we have to understand, Mo, we have to understand the situation in Brittany's state of mind. Don't worry, Mo. We will discuss coercive control after I'm finished with the That's not even what I was going to say. I was going to say the daughter's. Yes, that's true, too. She was beaten. She was forced to commit a violent acts on her friend. She witnessed a man being shot. She was worried for her life and the lives of her daughters. And she was in shock. Yes. So, but we will also discuss. Yes. I just want our listeners to keep in mind that things are not cut and dry. It's easy to think about what you would do. And there are people who might be able to have the emotional and mental strength to defy someone like Armando, but Brittany was not in the position to do that. Maybe if she hadn't been married to him all that time and, you know, if she had been just someone he had grabbed off the street, it would be different, but it's complicated. Yeah. Um, And also, like I said, he was her daughters who he had already threatened I know he was going towards where they were. Yes. So she had just watched him kill somebody. Yes. So it's not as easy as it might seem. No. no. And I wasn't able to find a lot of details. Newspaper reports alluded to a marriage that had been rife with domestic abuse. There were some court proceedings later where Armando's history with police was on the table as evidence, but apparently it didn't make it to the trial. Mm-hmm. But we will discuss the effect of domestic abuse and as- of control later. And as Laura Richards points out, it's not an abusive marriage. The, the husband is abusive yes, exactly. to the spouse, to the wife. So back to the story now that I have my little lecture. When Armando and Brittany got back to their house, Armando made Brittany pack up camping supplies. While she was loading the car, she heard Jonathan moaning, but eventually he was quiet. Then they took both cars and drove north. Armando led with Brittany following. He kept her on the phone constantly as they drove. Now, I was read... Jonathan in with Armando? or He was Brittany? in the back of the car with Brittany. Oh, okay. And his and Jonathan's right, car. Right, right. I've read a few reports saying that Armando was following Brittany, but I don't think that's accurate. She was following him. Right. Most of them say that. She did not know where they were going, and he did. And again, the fact that she was behind him leads people to wonder, why didn't she escape? And again, it's not that simple. The trip from their home to Atkinson Gilmanton Academy Grant is about 218 miles, the shortest route. Depending on the route, it's anywhere from 218 to 260. It takes four and a half to five hours to get there using highways not back roads. So it's a long drive. They stopped in Errol, which is the closest town to where they were going. And Armando bought cleaning supplies, including bleach, tarps, and shovels and and lighter fluid at the Errol General Store. A body disposal kit. (laughs) I know. By this time, it was Sunday morning. 
and stores were open because I was like, how did he stop in the middle of the night? And then it's like, well, it took forever to get there. Right. They probably didn't leave by till two or three. Because just uh, orient people, they're going from the southwestern corner of New Hampshire diagonally, and it's not like like you said, it's highways, but there's not one highway that goes. And it's long. Cuts across like that. There's the mountains and stuff. So it's it's a long drive. Yeah, it's a long drive. When they got into the woods at Atkinson, I should just call it the grant. That's yeah, what, just what, call it the grant. Yeah. That's what the prosecutor later, spoiler alert, called yeah. it. When they got into the woods at the grant, Armando started a campfire and burned Jonathan's driver's license and other identifying documents and evidence. Then they drove deeper into the woods and set up camp. Needless to say, by this time, Jonathan was dead. Armando pulled John's body partially out of the car and made Brittany cut John's head off using a hacksaw. Oh, jeez. Armando watched Brittany and made sure she did it. The saw didn't work that well, so she had to use a knife to finish removing John's head. I don't know if that was the machete or another knife. Armando said it was so the body couldn't be identified, which I call bullshit on because he wanted to make Brittany complicit in his crime. Yes. And also terrorize her more. And you don't need a whole body to find out who someone is. No, this is 20, DNA. This yeah. is in 2020, right. asshole. Oh. After taking John's body out of the car, Armando drove the car into some trees, crashing it and making it undrivable. Armando made Brittany go t- into the car and wipe down all the surfaces and clean the interior as best she could. Armando and Brittany covered the car with a tarp and piled branches on it and around to hide it. He ordered Brittany to put John's belongings in a bag and burn them over the fire. Once that was done, she covered the ashes with rocks. Armando gave Brittany a gun, a nine millimeter pistol to protect herself and left her with a to-do disc. And again, people yep. said the fact that she had a loaded pistol, why didn't she shoot him? Well, they're just not getting it. She was in the middle of nowhere. Right. She was she was beaten to shit and right. she was traumatized. Right. And just it, like when Jonathan told her to kill him, her fear of him was such that she felt if she missed, if she didn't do it right, he was going to kill her. That's right. Armando said when he came back, the body and evidence had better be disposed of. Brittany later testified, he told me I needed to have Jonathan's body buried by Tuesday afternoon. Then he would bring the girls on Friday. So I could give them a hug and a kiss and say goodbye to them. He said, you know, you're not coming home with us, right? So I guess he was going to leave for there for like a week. What an ass. At some point, Armando had made Brittany call work and quit over the phone, telling human resources at Teleflex that she was moving back to New Mexico. I'm thinking this was prior to them getting to the campsite because there's no cell service. Right. Armando left. Uh, he made a side trip to Maine to throw John's phone somewhere. And then he went back to Jaffrey. And like I said, it was right near the main border. Jonathan Amarant did not show up to work Monday, September 21st, and didn't call. This was not like him. His mother hadn't heard from him and reported him missing. Police went to Brittany's house to find out where she was after they found about her quitting abruptly. I'm also assuming that people at work knew about their friendship. So the fact that the two of them were not there raised some red flags. And Jonathan's mother also knew that he had this from Brittany. The, the cops, I guess, weren't dumb. They figured it oh, out. Good for them. Armando's parents told police that Brittany had gone camping. That's what their son had told them. When fishing game officers showed up at Brittany's camp on Tuesday, she had just finished putting Jonathan's body wrapped in the tarp in a stream near her camp. 
she had buried his head. She hadn't been able to bury his body for whatever reason. Well, it's hard to bury a body. I don't think that's why they're always in a shallow grave. Right. She later said that when the hunters came looking, honking their horns at her, she originally thought it was Armando. He had come back a couple of times to check she was still there after she thought he'd left for good. So he was just fucking with her. Mm -hmm. Her cell phone was dead by Tuesday when those fishing game guys came. Meanwhile, state police spoke with Armando. He told police he had dropped Brittany off in Temple, New Hampshire at 2 a.m. Sunday to go hiking with friends. Temple is about 10 miles east of Jaffrey. I don't understand why he would tell them such a stupid story. Who the fuck goes hiking at 2 a.m.? Well, they may have been planning to climb Mount Monadnock which oh, is the, one of the most climbed mountains in the world. Ooh. You know, and people want to get an early start. They wouldn't start at two, but they'd camp and then start oh, at dawn. Yeah. And also because people get lost there, it's not Katahdin, but maybe he figured, you know, they would assume she got. Oh, uh, yeah. He's such an idiot, though. Yeah. Armando agreed to meet police at the Jaffrey police station to talk more, but instead he just took off. <laughs> That doesn't surprise me. Mm. On Friday, September 25th, Armando Barron was arrested in Errol, New Hampshire. He was driving a pickup truck and the back of the truck were bags of soil, buckets and cement mix. Mm. According to one report, Armando originally thought police were serving him with divorce papers, but I doubt that's what he really thought. Yeah, I I doubt it too. The night Armando was arrested, police recorded his interview. Here's my dramatic reading. Oh, good. Police officer. So just so it's crystal clear, you are under arrest for domestic violence, assault, domestic assault. Armando. So she finally called you guys. (laughs) Officer. What's that? Armando. She finally called you guys. Officer. Well, I wouldn't say she called us. The the end. (laughs) Armando Barron was arrested on charges of capital murder. I'm not sure, but I don't think Armando knew that they had found Brittany days before. It seems like he was headed up to the campsite to finish her off. And I doubt they told him. I mean, they probably didn't tell anybody until they found out what was going on. Of course, he didn't even have his daughters with him like he told her he would. Mm. That asshole. After Brittany was taken back to the Berlin Police Department, she took a few hours to finally tell the truth. I was definitely reluctant to come out and say what was going on, she later testified. She met with New Hampshire State Police Officers Amatucci and Shatford. I don't know their first names. I didn't look them up. Once the shock wore off, Brittany started to cooperate. She offered to take a polygraph test and have her hand tested for gunpowder residue. The police took her to stay at a hotel Tuesday night. Brittany spent the day with the two state police officers on Wednesday. Brittany went back to the campsite with the police so she could show them where all the evidence was. She said, at the end of the day, I knew they were going to find the evidence. I might as well tell them everything. On Wednesday evening, the two state police officers helped Brittany make phone calls to see if she had a place to stay. She was released and allowed to stay at a co-worker's home. On Thursday night, September 24th, Brittany was arrested at about 11.30 p.m. She was charged with three counts of falsifying physical evidence, one for cleaning the car, a second for wrapping the body in a tarp, and the third for decapitating John. When Brittany was interviewed by state police, they said she told them she was having an affair with Jonathan and Armando hit the roof when he found out. 
Later, the state prosecutor said Brittany denied the affair. This was characterized by the other side as changing her story. Mm. But I don't think she ever changed her story. I think whoever was interviewing her got it wrong and jumped to conclusions. Yeah. Just saying. But also, Armando's defense lawyers would like it if there was an affair. The union leader quoted a, a defense lawyer from Nashua, New Hampshire, Tony Scalambrini, quote, the classic law school example of passion is you catch someone having an affair, end quote. This would make a difference in sentencing. In New Hampshire, first degree murder means life without parole, but second degree murder would allow for parole. So a crime of passion, which I hate that phrase, means it wasn't planned out. But my feeling is whether or not there was an affair is irrelevant. If Armando believed there was an affair is what matters. But the fact that he set up John proves enough of a plan to make a first degree murder. It's not like he walked in on Brittany and John making out or something. He had right. time to decompress and talk himself out of it. And he didn't. But I guess to a defense attorney, someone having an extramarital affair makes it easier to blame the victim, so to speak. Right. In April of 2021, Armando Barron was indicted for the following crimes. One count of capital murder for killing Jonathan while kidnapping or confining and terrorizing Jonathan Amaral. One alternate count of first degree murder for purposely causing John's death by shooting him. Two counts of solicitation of murder, first for trying to make Brittany shoot John and second for making her stand on John's neck and slash his wrists. One count of kidnapping for confiding Jonathan with the intent of terrorizing him. Two counts of solicitation of first degree assault, again for making Brittany one stand on Jonathan's neck and two cut his wrists. One count second degree assault for kicking John in the head. All of the above offenses were against Jonathan, but Armando was also indicted on charges in which Brittany was the victim. One count domestic violence for grabbing Brittany by the arm while holding a loaded gun and threatening her when he said, go quietly or the girls will see something fucking gruesome. Yeah, they see something fucking gruesome every day, their father. Mm -hmm. One count reckless conduct domestic violence for when he shoved the gun in Brittany's mouth. Two counts second degree assault for when he broke Britney's nose and for when he tried to strangle her. There were also misdemeanor offenses filed against him for domestic violence for hitting Britney in their home and the car. Armando was held without bail until his trial. The charge of capital murder was later dropped. A lot of times the prosecution was settled for charging first degree murder because it carries a mandatory life sentence as well as capital murder. And capital murder allows the defense more challenges in court and is also more complicated to prosecute. So I guess they figured we'll go with the simpler one and he'll still get life in prison. On September 2021, Brittany accepted a plea bargain in which she pled guilty in Grafton County Superior Court to three counts of falsifying evidence. She was sentenced to three and a half to seven years in prison with two years suspended with good behavior. Under the agreement, two counts of abusing a corpse were dropped. The court gave Brittany credit for time served prior to her plea, so that was almost a year so she was eligible for parole fairly quickly. After her hearing, Brittany said she felt shame and disgust for what she did. She said she wasn't going to try to defend it, though. It would be an insult to Jonathan's family. She said, I'm so sorry for every single thing I've done to Jonathan. I understand that my words are meaningless and do nothing to bring back your incredible son. The only way I can think of to try to show you that I'm really sincerely sorry is to accept full responsibility for my actions. I admit I had no right to do the things I did. I will live with this regret and shame for my whole life. Now, see, that's the kind of apology 
that people should make. She's not I making know. excuses, although she has plenty of that she could, may, many more than other people. It's a sincere apology, taking responsibility for her actions. And you don't hear that very often. No. But Justine Amaral, Jonathan's mother, was having none of it. Mm. She said what Brittany did was, quote, abhorrent, savage, evil beyond imagination, egregiously selfish, callous, and self-serving, end quote. She said Jonathan had the world in the palm of his hand. She snatched it from him, from his father, from me, and from the rest of Jonathan's extended family. He was the most beautiful person inside and out, and nothing will ever fix this. When Justine started speaking at Brittany's sentencing hearing, she mentioned that she had been told by the court she was not allowed to call Brittany names in her victim impacts. Hmm. She said, that's okay, because there simply does not exist a word that's low enough for us to call this guilty individual. This guilty individual stole my purpose for living, and she stole Jonathan's too. Because of her immoral behavior, he will never realize his full potential on earth. Because she acted with immoral lust, recklessly dragging him into her life, worlds collided. He typed words into a phone. He was not her lover. My hands shake. My head aches. Sleep is a battle to keep away the horrific images of what she did to my beautiful son. I wake up to a stabbing pain in my pounding heart. I hear the sound of my son screaming in the darkness. And I will say that I understand her anger because her son is dead for no good reason. And it's interesting because she's not, most of it is not saying I hate her for what she did is like standing on his neck and whatever. It's almost like she does recognize the fact that Brittany didn't want to hurt Jonathan, but she's still blaming her because she she well, thinks she's irresponsible to come involved with him well, when, she, when she was involved with an asshole. What I understood, I understand, but don't sympathize until she got to immoral lust, which yeah. sounds like she's blaming Brittany for, quote unquote, seducing Yes. her son where mm-hmm. nothing of that sort no happened. she didn't lure him they just were attracted to and it other. sounds it's like he was as attractive lust. as she yes. was yes. and she was trying to get away split up with her husband she didn't seduce him you know i i get tired yeah. of the trope of the woman being the seductress and the guy just being this helpless victim of seduction with no control over his not that he obviously deserved to die and not that they don't have a right to be angry which i'll say more later when you're done but Brittany cannot be blamed for the very simple and innocent friendship she had i know in april 2022 Brittany mitchell she took back her maiden name was released on parole the conditions of parole required Brittany to have mental health treatment, take any prescribed medication, have no contact with Jonathan's family, have GPS monitoring for 90 days and possibly afterward at her parole officer's discretion. On Tuesday, May 17, 2020, Armando's trial began. His defense was that he did not shoot Jonathan Amaral. Brittany did. Yes, he assaulted his wife and her friend, but he's not the one who pulled the trigger. Ah, why would he? His defense attorney, Meredith Lugo, said the wrong person is on trial. His defense, he had two. I'm sorry, I didn't put right down the name of the other one, but they were public defenders. It wasn't Uh, right. He also denied that he put the gun in Brittany's mouth or ordered her to kill Jonathan. 
But Prosecutor Benjamin Agati said the defendant had all the motive to kill Jonathan because for him, Jonathan was a man who had just started seeing his wife, a man who his wife thought looked like an Abercrombie model, a man who was at her workplace and that he now knew was talking to his wife behind his back, the man he instantly saw as a rival. He's not the greatest writer for the prosecutor. At the trial, Jonathan's mother testified that John had told her about Brittany and that she was in an abusive marriage, but, quote, she was done. A friend of John said the texts were a little graphic, but unfortunately, I could not find any transcripts of them, so I have no idea what the two said to each other. Mm. Both John's mother, Justine Amaral, and his friend, Austin Zuricker, testified that Jonathan was lonely and longed for a romantic relationship. He really liked Brittany and was happy about the possibility of a future with her. When Brittany was on the stand, she was asked why she didn't drive away when they stopped in Errol to get supplies. She said, I wasn't going to test him. I knew what he had just done, what I had just witnessed, what I had just been through myself. At this point, I was going to do exactly what this man says. Also, she said they were in a remote place. She didn't know where to go, and she was afraid he would find her and kill her. Mm -hmm. On the fourth day of Armando's trial, forensic evidence from the medical examiner, Dr. Jenny Duvall, was presented. Dr. Duvall said he has deep cuts. He has several lacerations on his scalp and these other gunshot wounds on the legs and the arm. So these are significant injuries. They're all going to be bleeding and cause varying levels of incapacitation. But the most immediately lethal wound is one of those gunshot wounds that entered the head. Jonathan had gunshot wounds on both thighs, his left arm, and two in his head, one being the fatal shot. Brittany had testified that Arondo shot John three times, and Dr. Duvall said that three bullets could have caused all five wounds. Quote, I'll say a fetal position bent at the waist, bent at the knees. That could be a straight line. That's one. There could be another bullet that entered the left arm, the elbow region, and re-entered the head if his arm is up around his head, sort of cradling his head, protecting his head. And then the third one appears, a close-range wound, end quote. In other words, poor Jonathan was in the fetal position trying to cover his head when he was shot and killed. Mm -hmm. The defense said Brittany's testimony about Jonathan's position when he got shot did not match the evidence or the angle of the bullets. Brittany had told investigators that Armando was in the passenger seat facing the back and John was in the back with his head against the hatchback when the fatal bullet was shot. The evidence didn't match the scenario. In the trial, the defense specifically asked if that position would have resulted in those injuries, and Dr. Duvall said no. Defense attorney Meredith Lugo said, if Brittany isn't being honest with you about that, what else isn't she telling you? To which I say, come on, can you imagine what was going on at that moment? Please. Jonathan was most likely moving around trying to protect himself. So who knows what position he right. was Right. And she was probably freaking out. <laughs> well, and she, yeah. it wasn't like she was sitting there saying, okay, I have to memorize the position. So stupid. You know. I mean, I know the defense has to do their job. I know. The Jeep Patriot was seen on surveillance footage driving through downtown Jaffrey the night of the murder towards Ringe. Two hours later, John Subaru Impreza was seen going the same way. The Jeep had dried blood on it, mostly Britney's, but some Jonathan's. Armando's palm print and fingerprints were found on the rear spoiler of John's car. But none of Armando's DNA was found on any of the items tested as evidence, to which I say no kidding, because he made Brittany do everything. A firearms expert testified that the bullets that shot Jonathan came from Armando's revolver. The defense said Brittany, quote, had a story she was selling, end quote. 
They said that Brittany was obviously dishonest. She lied to the fish and game officers when they first found her. The defense attorney said, you have only Brittany's word that it was Armando that shot Amaro. If that isn't a reasonable doubt, then what is? Meredith Lugo, the defense attorney, also said her claims are like something out of a TV movie, not real life. They are sensationalized to make Armando seem like a monster and her Mm. seem like the tragic victim, end quote. And I I don't think you have to sensationalize them. Armando did not testify in his own defense. This is not uncommon, as we've already discussed in previous episodes. Besides the obvious reason of what (laughs) could he possibly say, he also had a history of domestic violence, according to newspaper reports, but of course they didn't give specifics. And he had a criminal record for deserting the U.S. Army. Mm. If he got on the stand, he could have been questioned about those things. You know, the judge didn't allow his domestic violence history in. But if he had said one little thing on the stand that was anything to do with it, then they would have been allowed to ask him about it. So, And also, I think people think people take the stand in their own defense more often than people really do. Because one of the big issues is how the person's going to come across the jury. And I can absolutely bet just by looking up photos of Armando and from what you've said so far, that the jury would not have liked him one little and bit. And also, if you watch her testimony, if I were on the jury, she obviously, she was crying and it wasn't fake. You right. could tell she wasn't acting. And she spoke very well and everything. If I were his attorney, I'd be like, eh. The prosecution pointed out that Brittany had left her home in pajamas and slippers that night. Armando had left the home with a gun and a machete. Senior Assistant Attorney General Benjamin Agati said, three people went into the woods that night. One was forced to go there after she was beaten. One was tricked into going in there where he was beaten. And one of them went there to hurt and kill. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wonder which was which. (laughs) Why, Agati said, would Brittany have admitted to decapitating Jonathan? Why would she have told about stepping on his neck? She wouldn't have known that the autopsy would confirm that story. Yeah, she didn't know what they had for evidence. Right. She she told them what happened and what she told them. The evidence matched it. And I'm sure if big fat Armando had stepped on his neck, he probably would have died. Yeah. She's heavy in her testimony, but I believe she was thin at the time of them. It took less than two hours for the jury to find Armando guilty of all charges. His mother was in the courtroom and started crying when the verdict was read. Huh. On May 27th, Armando of this year, Armando was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the charge of first degree murder. For the other charges, another 45 to 135 years were added to his sentence. John's parents had some choice words for Armando at his sentencing. Justine said Armando was a creature not even worthy of a glance from me. The last hours of Jonathan's beautiful life were in the company of this ugly, hideous, demented creature, end quote. And I want to say, I guess they didn't give her that same warning about calling somebody names. (laughs) Yeah. She also called Armando a venomous, conniving, murderous beast and said he was lower than the excrement of filth. Wow. And that thing about lower than the excrement of filth, that was in a lot of the newspapers. Yeah. You know, people like us were used to writing and expressing ourselves and stuff. When people who may not be get a chance, this is the one time in their life yes. when they really, really want to say what they feel. And-, and I don't actually have an issue with her no being like that to him because 
the ones that try to appeal to somebody's conscience, I don't think those work. Calling him a piece of filth. Right. Kenny Amaral, who was John's father, said, you are a coward. You had to ambush and attack John with knives, a machete and guns just to take him down. A wife beater. Disgusting. Despicable. You mentioned to John that you have a revolver called the judge. Now we have another judge here today who will decide your miserable fortune. The only good thing I see about this heinous, heinous crime is that you are not 40 years old, 50 or 60, but only 30 years old. You will have a long, long time to fade away and rot in prison. Judge Elizabeth Leonard said at the sentencing, you are going to be spending a very long time in the state prison for these heinous crimes. The depravity of your actions and single-handedly causing immense suffering and the death of Jonathan Amaral show an extreme indifference to the value of human life. Your actions were brutal, absolutely horrific. They were selfish and they were completely senseless. The abject cruelty, the pain and suffering, and all that you inflicted on Jonathan that night is unfathomable. One of the hardest parts of my job is often sentencing in cases and finding the appropriate balance to strike in imposing a fair sentence. However, I have absolutely no hesitation or reservation in imposing the sentences I am about to impose on you, given your actions and the crimes you committed and were convicted for in this case. In an email to the Associated Press, Justine Amaral wrote, all he did was respond to her text messages for eight days during the last 10 days of his life. Throughout his life, Jonathan was surrounded by hundreds of the most wholesome good people, co-workers, friends, and family. It's beyond comprehension that such a beautiful young man should die in the presence of such two filthy evil creatures. On June 30th, Armando Barron was in court again. He was sentenced to 10 and a half to 23 years for one felony second degree assault charge and two counts of felony domestic violence and two counts of misdemeanor domestic violence. He also got a three and a half to seven year suspended sentence for second degree assault with strangulation. At the hearing, the prosecutor, Benjamin Agati, reminded everyone that Brittany was also a victim. He said, if you don't recognize that at sentencing, it belittles what occurred to her or sends a message to both her and other members of the community who may have been or may be subject to violence in the grand scheme of things. What happened didn't matter. It does, it does matter. Brittany did not attend this latest sentencing because she did not want to have to relive the trauma. Testifying at Armando's trial was hard on her. Armando was ordered to have no contact with Brittany except what was necessary in family court proceedings. Judge Elizabeth Leonard told Armando, Brittany Barron was a victim in both crimes you committed. Jonathan, of course, was the ultimate victim. His only crime was befriending and flirting with a co-worker. He was doing well at his job. He did just bought a house in Keene and he was fixing it up and he was really proud of it. He was an avid outdoorsman. He loved hiking and they climbed 66 of the 67 peaks over 4,000 feet in the Northeast. And he had climbed all 48 of them that are in New Hampshire. Unlike the guy that you talked about earlier. <laughs> Born and raised in Milford, New Hampshire. He graduated with honors from Rochester Institute of Technology with a degree in biomedical engineering. Justine said that Jonathan had the most beautiful inner light. Evil recognized Jonathan's inner light and evil tried to extinguish it. Mm -hmm. But there are some who bring a light so great to those around them that even after they have gone, the light remains. Rest in peace, Jonathan. Your light remains with us. End quote. I did some reading on the role of coercive control and co-offending or joint enterprise, as it's called, when someone ropes another person into participating in crimes. 
there's a continuum of this kind of thing. One end being like a person with a gun trained on them forced to harm another person. And then it goes all the way to the other end where the person has been so brainwashed or controlled that they think that they are willingly helping in the crime, like kind of like Patty Hearst or someone Mm -hmm. like that. I think Brittany was close to the first end of the spectrum. She had been beaten and she was under extreme duress. The problem is prosecutors still don't often recognize coercive control as a factor. And since the trial was against Armando and not Brittany, there were no experts on domestic violence and coercive control testifying. I read a few scholarly articles about the subject and one in particular hit on a lot of other studies. And it came out just about the time Brittany was pleading guilty. I'm going to read a couple of interesting excerpts, short ones. First of all, the article is in a British publication called the Howard Journal of Crime and Justice. The title is Defending Co-Offending Women, Recognizing Domestic Abuse and Coercive Control in Joint Enterprise Cases Involving Women and Their Intimate Partners. The researcher who wrote it is Susie Hulley, and it was published September 10th, 2021. The first excerpt I'll read is this. There has been significant debate about the reductive nature of positioning women either as entirely rational, independent agents of their crimes, or as victims unable to control their offending behavior due to experiences of coercion in intimate relationships. Okay, it just says, see Barlow 2016. Rather, Barlow calls on criminology to explore the ways in which agency and coercion are entangled, as coercion, like Ivy, wraps itself around women constraining their choices. Here she emphasizes the ways in which abusive controlling and or obsessive relationships with a male partner may influence a woman's decision to offend, with evidence suggesting that domineering partners leave women feeling cornered with little choice but to participate in the offense. And this is me again. So this article focuses on women who seem to have a little more agency than Brittany had at the ones that they talked to. Still, it's important to realize that they don't always have the power in making a decision. In the study, women prisoners who had been co-offenders with domestic partners were interviewed. Here's another excerpt. A large proportion of the women in the study had experienced domestic abuse in childhood or adulthood, and almost half were experiencing domestic violence at the time of their offense. In 87% of these cases, the co-defendant was the perpetrator of this abuse, indicating the possible constraints that these women faced with their involvement in the offense. And this is me again. Although I couldn't get a lot of information about Brittany's past, her lawyer mentioned she had suffered abuse as a child, been kicked out of her family as a teen, and we know she suffered abuse at the hands of Armando. And this is just a quote from one of the women in the study. Her name was Rosie and she was convicted of manslaughter. The general public probably think that justice was served, that we're both disgusting, horrific people, so we should rot in prison. Because again, that's the perception that they have of the situation. I was like a little puppet to him. If he said jump, I'd say how high. If he told me to sit there quietly and do nothing, I would sit there quietly and do nothing, which I think for him was just a sense of control more than anything. He was abusive in every context of it. So mentally, physically, sexually, the whole lot. The mental cycle, it was a lot worse than anything else because it still leaves you even now with a lot of issues. But it could start with the smallest of things and just escalate so quickly, and then you'd be fine again, and somehow it would still be your fault. 
And as I said before, it's easy to ask why Brittany didn't escape at the several opportunities she had. Why didn't she try to kill Armando with the machete? Why didn't she drive off? Why didn't she tell the hunters what happened? Why did she lie to the fish and game officers and to the cops? Because she was terrorized, she was in shock. She had been forced to do horrible things to her friend. And make no mistake, Armando forced her to do those things because he knew how it would affect her. She was not like him. She was not an abusive, violent person. How many of us could cut someone's head off and not be traumatized by it? Especially when that person was someone you liked and cared about. Armando making Brittany commit those violent acts was his way of punishing her. It was his way of controlling her. And I'm glad he's in prison forever now. And I hope Brittany and her girls are getting help. And it's so, so very sad that a nice young man had to die because he was nice and got involved with a total asshole. And that is the end. Thank you for that stuff on course of control. And I want to add that was done in that study was British. Mm-hmm. because they have coercive control laws. Thanks to Laura. When you said prosecutors don't address coercive control, one of the issues is that's why people are trying to get laws. Mm-hmm. And, and here's how things, I took some notes while you're talking, here's how Armand's trial would have been different if we had coercive control laws. They could have charged him with coercive control under those laws and therefore his past domestic violence would have been allowed in as part of his coercive control pattern. She may not have been charged if there were coercive control laws. If he as a coercive controller could be proved, then there would have been more leeway to not charge her with the stuff she had done. Also, the defense lawyer said it wasn't real life. It obviously is real life, but because we don't have laws to address coercive control, people aren't aware of it or speaking about it. And actually, well, what happened to Brittany is extreme. It's more often the woman is being controlled then she then it's like a bonnie and clyde thing where she's just going along for the ride and you know taking part in it if there were coercive control laws a lot of the other things against armand would have been easier to prove because coercive control looks at where all this thing isn't just in a vacuum the whole thing and this isn't really on that specific topic of the prosecution addressing coercive control But where they kept talking about her lying to the cops, obviously Mm -hmm. she was more afraid of Armand than she was of police and the law, which is why he had her where she was. And I also question, like you did, about her lying. We see all the time how she may say, Jonathan and I were talking, we kissed, blah, blah, blah. And they're writing in their notes they were having an affair. Yes, but I was going to say about course of control. That's what, like that woman Rosie at the end. That it's the mental part that's the worst, right? Because your brain is for half of her thirty years. She she's conditioned to obey this guys, and like the whole homeschooling thing. Mm, I know there are people who homeschool for legitimate reasons, yes. not white. But as we talked about way back with our turpins, yes, um, that's what made me think about. There's a lot of a lot of coercive controllers, and I think it's telling that it was him supposedly doing it and staying home with the kids mm. because they want to control every aspect of the home yeah. life and the spouse they quote unquote homeschool the kids because every single thing has to be under their thumb and i wonder how enabling his parents were he told them to say things they're controlled too in a way whether they realize they are or not 
Or they, you see in a lot of cases, like the recent shooter in Chicago, the 4th of July shooter in Chicago, where the parents obviously have done things to enable the person and they don't think they've done anything wrong because he's their wonderful kid. Just like the the kid a year or two ago whose parents got him the gun for Christmas. Yes. Shooter. One big theme, and obviously we don't know the specifics of Armin's history, is but it was just like I was saying before with Jelaine Maxwell getting sentenced, guys get away with shit. Yeah. You know, people think you hear a lot of times, oh, the system's rigged against men, blah, blah, blah. It is not because these guys are allowed. And if there were coercive control laws, there would be more ways to to measure this and to trace this. These guys are allowed to abuse over and over and over again Mm -hmm. without having to pay the price for it. In fact, Laura Richards wants a domestic violence registry similar to the sexual yes um, you know the sexual predator registry. But of course there would never will be one because men think they're treated unfairly when it comes to domestic violence. And online there's there's raw footage of Brittany being cross-examined by the defense attorney and the defense attorney is obviously trying to make the jury see that Brittany did all the like they right. wouldn't know that already Brittany already said what she did right but she's like so you weren't charged with standing on his neck right you weren't charged with slitting mm-hmm. his wrist right thank goodness the jury saw through that yeah so well, yeah. thank you so, that was a good so story. you knew you kind of knew almost i had that. seen a lot of it but i was at baxter when he was sentenced and stuff so i yeah. kind of forgotten about it because there's just been so much and of course it hasn't been in the main papers and no. There was a, you know, there was just like a little blurb, and right. I, but it said decapitation. I'm like, oh, I didn't hear about decapitation. Yeah. So, I, but it was just small articles when he was on trial. It right. didn't make- and it hasn't been in the Globe, which I read every morning. And I look at the New Hampshire papers because I do stuff for Carol, but not as often, you know, Manchester. It was on like Inside Edition. There's one online dun, about dun, it, dun, dun, dun. which well, they show, of course, it's sensationalized and they get a bunch of shit wrong. So but, anyway. But no, but thank you. That was good. So you had, you had have an NNW. I do. Negative Nellie's washing for those of you who are new. (laughs) But just because I haven't said it in a while, it's a review where they start out with 10 points and lose points for a variety (laughs) of reasons. 10 reasons and then there's my tea kettle so that's 11 for me and the and then there was my billy jensen thing where i took points away because i hated him so much and now i'm i find i'm justified in hating him yeah we can talk about that some other day so before i review the one i'm going to review i just want to give a quick shout out to another one i want to give a quick shout out to the mystery of marilyn monroe on netflix Ah. and i watched it the other night at first i'm like do i really want to see another marilyn monroe thing but this has a unique thing and the one i'm going to talk about tonight they both have a unique way to do reenactments that has made them above and beyond other documentaries with the Marilyn Monroe one it was narrated by a British guy who in the 80s was asked by his publisher whoever to look into her death again as people remember she died in 1962 supposedly of a drug overdose but you know the Kennedys were involved in all this she was having an affair with both President Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and blah 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 so he interviewed all sorts of people he went to la and interviewed all sorts of people involved 
who knew her, friends of hers and stuff. And so I start watching this and there's a thing that said, the audio you hear is real. The people are being portrayed by actors. And I'm like, oh God, that's going to suck. I don't even want to watch this. But it was so good because oh. they had the people, they looked like they should have. There were no anachronisms. People were dressed and in settings. And so these actors are lip syncing to these audios of the interviews this guy did. You know, and it's a regular documentary too. It has your talking heads and a lot of video of Marilyn, but it's very good. But the way oh. they did that was so good and so compelling. I almost did my NNW on it Ooh. because it worked so well. And it was such a great way because they had all this audio. How do you show the audio? Do you just show a tape recorder going around like <laughs> some do? No. And I was going to do my NNW on that until I watched Captive Audience on who. Captive Audience is a three-episode series about Steven Stainer slash Carrie Stainer, two yes. brothers. Yes. And I've been putting off watching it for quite a long time because I'm like, I know this story. I don't want to watch it, blah, blah, blah. But I was in the mood to watch True Crime, and I kept seeing it. And I'm like, okay, why don't I watch it? And for people who don't know, Steven Stainer was kidnapped as a seven-year-old in 1972 he was held by this pedophile for seven years when the guy kidnapped another kid, a five-year-old Steven decided, okay, enough is enough. And he took the kid and went to the police and he told the police, I know my first name is Steven, which became in the TV movie ten years yeah. later, a TV movie, which is germane to this. Then his brother, and this is not a spoiler, it is if you don't know the story because it doesn't come out to the third episode, but his older brother, Carrie, later became a mass murderer at Yosemite Ugh. National Park. The documentary was directed by Jessica Dimock. Our first category is bad reenactments mm -hmm. and there are not. They are Ooh. so good. And here's what this... Oh, so it has reenactments. Well, so. let me tell you okay. what it does. First of all, because of the movie, I know my name, first name is Steven. Yes. For quote unquote reenactments, they use clips from the movie. Awesome. They acknowledge the movie. They don't shy away from it. And another thing they do is they have the guy who wrote the movie, JP something, I can't remember his name. He had taped all these conversations he had with the producers, but also he extensively interviewed the Stainer family. So another thing they re do really well, which I'm putting under the reenactment thing, is they have the actor Corey Nemec, who played Steven Stainer as an adult now, reading that the director reads the writer's part and he reads Steven Stainer's part. I know it's complicated, but the guy who wrote the made-for-TV movie mm -hmm. interviewed Steven Stainer and recorded it. Oh, okay, okay. And this Steven so the was... the real Steven. Okay. Right, the real Steven, and he was an adult by then. The, the movie came out about 10 years. I thought it was closer, because I remember watching it. But it I came know, out in 1988 so. or 89, and Steven turned home in 1979. So they have the guy sitting there, Corey Nemec, the actor, with the script, and the director is off screen and she's playing the part of the writer and asking the questions and he's responding, reading Stephen's part. And he is so good and he's ah. reading and it's very effective. So it's showing what Stephen Stainer 10 years later said to the writer who wrote the movie. Okay. And then they have another actor who isn't as good, but is still pretty good. The guy who played Carrie also does that. So 
they have these different levels where they have the made for TV movie. They have these interviews with Stephen and Carrie Stainer that were done by this writer. And they also have, they show audio of the guy who wrote the made for TV movie talking to the producers of the movie about decisions they're making on what to put in the movie. I mean, there were some things that, you know, were not, that didn't really happen and stuff, but decisions they had to make. So there's a lot of different levels to it. When they have those conversations, they show them. And of course they use like 1970s, 80s style Helvetica font, very big. So there are no cheesy reenactments unless you count the made for TV movie cheesy because they do show that, but they're acknowledging that they're using that. Okay. Narrative cliches, I'm taking away half a point for the the thing that we're always taking away half a point. The B-roll thing where the person comes in and says to the director, oh, can I get a drink of water, blah, 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 and sits down. The first time I ever saw it, it was okay, but now every fucking documentary does it. In fact, that one with the British guy who just did the, where he was embedded with the Trumps, the clips they're showing from that, because I guess it came out on Discovery Plus today, are all the B-roll things of like Ivanka and Don Jr. and stuff sitting down and doing shit and it's like enough already with that shit it maybe it was interesting the first time someone did it but now it's i know you know and this has it at the beginning and at the end where the person sighs and gets up and leaves and stuff and whatever racial gender obtuseness no in fact i was concerned over the three episodes that they were gonna gloss over because when Stephen first came home everybody acted like this guy didn't sexually abuse him. Uh And I thought that they were going to handle that kind of ham handedly. And if there's a place to put this, I guess I could put it in storytelling too. But when they get into the later episodes, they do address that and they address why it was handled the way it was in the made for TV movie and everything on several different layers. So they do a good job of that. Visuals are very good because besides having the made for TV movie, Steven Stainer's father was one of those guys with movie camera. So there's lots of home family movies. There's lots of photos. There was a shitload of news footage when Steven came home and stuff. The family, the mother regrets it now. And she was the best one on the whole show. They did every single fucking interview anybody asked for. So the visuals are great. Missing pieces. I'm taking away half a point. The final episode is Mm. the story about what happened with Carrie. And I thought that actually, I know they're probably limited to how much they can do or how much, I don't know how documentaries work when they decide how long they're going to be. But I think I felt like that should have been two episodes and gone more into the story of what happened at Yosemite. I mean, if you've never heard about what happened, you learn about it on this. It needed more. I wonder with those uh, network ones, if there's like, yeah, okay, was, we're going to give you three episodes right, of a certain right. amount. But, just, and also, and this is maybe a dumb thing for missing pieces, but when Steven, and I'm sure I read this somewhere and I've forgotten, when he came home, he was carrying a little dog. And of course, in the made-for-TV movie, they had him carrying a little dog, although in in real life, it was a little dachshund, and in the movie, it was a cute little fuzzy, totally not dachshund dog. I listened to a podcast about a year or two ago about the whole thing, and I think he had a dog, and so they let him keep it, like he had a dog with his pedophile mm-hmm. captor. But I wish they had explained, because they kept showing him with the dog, they had explained <laughs> more about the dog. But the real reason I'm taking away half a point is I just felt that there should have been two episodes about the carry okay. thing. Inaccuracies and acronisms. 
I had thought when I was watching it that there was something, but I didn't write it down and can't remember. So I'm not taking away any points. If I see it again, I'll mention it. Storytelling is excellent. The way they do the different layers that I talked about with the reenactment, his daughter, Stephen Stainer's daughter, Ashley, who was four or five when he died, he was hit riding his motorcycle by a hit and run driver. And he had two young kids. She is one of the main interviewees and she's very good. And she was very interested in having her father's real story told. And the mother of both Stephen and Carrie Stainer is another interviewee and she's the best. She is so good. So the way they mix the interviews, the way they tell the story If you're not familiar with the story, I don't know if somebody on this documentary said it, or if I heard somebody else say it, well, you probably haven't heard of this story. And I'm like, well, if you're (laughs) our age, you have, yeah, you know, or even 10 years younger than us because of that made for TV movie. I know. And I think the title just sticks with people. Yeah. Because my first name is, yeah. And also back even in the eighties, when something was on, everybody watched it, you know? So the storytelling and also mixing in and then having the reactions of the actor, Corey, I know I'm saying his last name wrong. He was one of the two or three Corey child actors that were around. He was the one with the 80s hair. They have him and the guy who played Carrie also react to what they're reading and talk about playing them in the movie and stuff too. So there's a lot of different layers that you'd think would be confusing, but it all works really well. So the movie isn't just about what happened to the Stainer family, but why it happened and how it was perceived by people and it's just very multi-leveled storytelling that really works well and one thing that really pleased me is that it's an easy assumption that I've heard people make before and I was cringing that this thing would do it too that because Carrie Stainer you know all the focus was on Stephen both when he was missing for seven and a half years and then when he was found is what quote unquote made Carrie Stainer become Uh a mass murderer and this documentary you think they're going to go in that direction but then they do have people clear it up and say no there was something wrong with this guy And that can be an excuse, but he obviously, what he did has really nothing to do with what happened Mm. to Steven because people, oh, because his brother, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. killed four women. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. Freshness, yes. Not only does it tell a story that I know we're familiar with, but, and has been done in the past in a podcast that I listened to that I can't remember which one did. It's not one of those ones that's just always out there. Uh And I think maybe if you are in your 20s or 30s or something, you're much less familiar with it than we are. But it's also fresh, aside from that little B-roll stuff. I mean, they had the benefit of having that made-for-TV movie, but having the actors, especially the one who played Steven Stainer, read his interviews, play him, so to speak, in his interviews with the writer of the made-for-TV movie and stuff, just really adds this level that I found when I realized what they were doing, because I don't know if it's really clear at first what they're doing and I missed it or what, but when you realize it, because at first I'm like, wow, who's this guy? He's, wow, he really expresses himself (laughs) strongly. Repetition, they do, you know, show the same photos and stuff but there's context to it i'm not taking away any points for repetition beating the drum they don't there could have been things they beat the drum about but they take a lot of different threads and pull them out and so that is a nine 
Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to watch. I was very reluctant to watch it because I'm like, I already know this. I know it'll be annoying and blah blah blah. I really wanted to watch it again before I did my NNW, but didn't have time. But I do want to watch it again just because it's one of those ones. There's so much to it that you know you've missed stuff. It's interesting. They interviewed people who you know for seven years he went under the name of Dennis Mm -hmm. uh, Purnell when he was with the pedophile kids he went to high school with his dentist like a girl he dated and stuff talking about him but just very compelling it's definitely really good worth watching there was almost literally nothing annoying about it it's funny too his story is so similar to that more recent one same thing where that so, guy yeah the kid's name the yeah. kid was taken and then when the and the kids kid that taken, kid's name his first name was Seth, maybe, or something. It started with mm-hmm. an S. It wasn't Steven. Like, his last name was Ormond, or... I just remember when that all came out, I remember thinking, wow, it's just, uh, like, it's just like Steven Stainer. Yeah. yeah, and it's one yeah. of the things that keeps people's hope alive when their kid disappears. Oh, that... God. But it, it's good if you get Hulu. I think it's just... Yeah, I have Hulu. I have... But and for the, our listeners... That, yeah, and Marilyn, the Marilyn Monroe one. So the Mystery good. of Marilyn Monroe. I know there's more than one Marilyn doc out there. It's called The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe. It's on Netflix. It's very, very good because this guy has a lot of... Has talked to all these people, a lot of information, especially if you're, again, younger than us and not as immersed in all the minute of jfk and bobby kennedy's Mm. sorted little lives but also just you forget that these people are lip syncing to this audio (laughs) and i guess i knew that joe dimaggio was a wife beater when he was married and arthur miller another dick poor marilyn poor fucking marilyn she was just so fucking used and jerked i know by asshole men but anyway. she was like a cat. She lived her life like a candle in right. the rain. Never knowing who to turn to when the rain came in. We should write that down. Okay. Write it down. Um, I want to say though, um, as far as reenactments, I wish I could remember the name of it. Do- the documentary that it was about steroid scandal and baseball. The reenact- Screwed. Was it the one with the kids? I think it was called Screwed. Did I don't you know. I don't watch, watch it? it. No. Oh my God. It's so I hate, good. I hate sport. Oh, I know. But because, the- you know, I used to love sports, but then I was a sports editor. I was thinking that when the stupid golf preempted the news, not that I'm in love yes. with our local news, but I'm like, I hate, I, it's not that I hate golf, but I just hate seeing these guys and listening to the announcers talk. I know. They talk about like so much. If you're but- Tony Romo, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Why do you say if you're Tony Romo and just saying Tony Romo has to make this? pot because they love to talk because like by the way it wasn't golfers it turns out it was people like tony romo who yes was a i know player play. oh yeah you watched it too but i was going to say sorry is the, the best thing though is why i want you to watch it if i could remember what it is screwed is it kids do the... are you do you hear me when i say it yes okay i do can i finish a fucking okay. sentence okay reenactments are done by little kids oh, are they funny oh. Oh, well, then maybe I should watch it. The kid that does Alex Rodriguez is so (laughs) A fraud. Talk about little kids. He can play himself. Sorry, Yankee fans. Oh, well, now now Jennifer Lopez has come to her senses. Yes. Gone back to Ben Affleck. Not that he's that much better, but I know. At least he's not a fraud. (laughs) Although I thought she and he made it, I thought she and A Rod made a good. Well, she was definitely the brains of the operation. But anyway, we should go. It's getting late. Yes. We may come out with a mini next week on something that happened here in Maine that we didn't have time for tonight. Little special summer episode for our listeners.
how come your face you're just like a silhouette it's creepy don't <laughs> sorry. I had to scratch my face. Okay, I put it away. You were so like, I don't know. It was just funny. It was like another hand was something. <laughs> but, anyways. Um, anyway.